What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Is the Fed pause now just around the corner? The market already coming to that conclusion. Now some Fed members are signaling it, too. But will chair power overrule them and devastate the market's hopes? We will debate that in just a moment. Plus, a failed succession plan and now a proxy fight. Activist investor Nelson Peltz wants a seat on Disney's board, saying the company has, quote, lost its way. We have the latest and what it means for the stock. And bank earnings on deck. Talk about a much-needed pulse on the economy. Will it expose cracks or show continued strength? We look at what to expect and how to position. But first, these markets building a nice rally over here, Dom Chu. Session highs right now is what we're talking about, Kelly. So, again, we've seen both sides of that unchanged line in a very volatile trade post-consumer price index data right now. The S&P 500 is what we're going to focus on today, the broader measure. It's up about 22 points to 39.91. So, again, pushing towards that 4,000 level. S&P 500 E-mini futures at one point today did eclipse that 4,000 mark. So, again, up 21 points, 22 points at the highs of the session. We're talking up 25, down 32 points at the lows of the session. Gives you an idea of the trading range so far today. The Dow Industrials, 34,256, up 285 points, nearly 1% gains there, and about two-thirds of 1% for the Nasdaq Composite, now holding right at 11,000 in that big figure. So keep an eye on that. One other place we're watching is Bitcoin prices, because we are now above 18,000. Remember, for the longest time, we were talking about this band that was just kind of around the 16,000 range. It's been a very narrow trading range for several months now. But 18,870 is important because at this level, again, still a long ways to go. You're talking the highest level since roughly November 8th at this level. So 18,848, we're watching Bitcoin prices. And by the way, that's stocks that are more levered to it. So keep an eye on those. And then The stocks that you want to watch are flying higher today. Uh, That's a pun intended there. Please forgive it. American Airlines up 8% right now after it comes out and revises its fourth quarter guidance. It's going to come out with much better results than the street was looking for the prior to that update. So American Airlines up 8%. United Airlines up 5%. Delta up almost 3%. JetBlue up 3% and 2% gains for Southwest. So the entire airline complex and by extension transportation stocks, Kelly, see a nice bid today. But we can thank American Airlines for the main thrust of that upside move. We'll keep an eye on those transports. I'll send things back over to you. We'll see what happens with those Delta earnings. Dom, thanks. Let's get right to the top story of the day. The latest CPI number showing the biggest drop since April 2020. And another Fed official, this time a voter, saying the Fed should stick with just quarter point hikes from here. Let's bring in Steve Leisman with more. Steve. Yeah, and let me get to another Fed official, uh, Kelly. Just the past hour, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard pushed back against low rates in the market, saying the market is failing to price in the potential upside risk to inflation. And it's too optimistic inflation is going to return easily to 2%. It's a potential sign Fed officials are becoming uncomfortable with the fall in yields that fell today in the wake of the inflation report and the jobs report a week ago. You can see about 50 basis points have come off the two-year. About the only concession comes from Fed officials like Philly's Patrick Harker, whom Kelly was just talking about. He said today he supports a 25 basis point hike at the next at the upcoming meeting. 
Bullard wouldn't be nailed down by that. He sounds like he wanted to go 50. Uh, here's the data that the Fed is, I don't know, incorporating, ignoring, I don't know. Uh, down 0.1%, the first decline since the pandemic on the headline number. Uh, it was 0.1% uh, in the prior month. Uh, year over year, 6.5%. Core, still up a little hot, 0.3%. But the year over year rate came down to 57 Why? Because Bigger increases are dropping out of the 12-month index. Big declines in energy, big declines in airline fares, used cars, and fruits and vegetables. There were some important sectors with rising prices. Natural gas up 3.1% on the month. Electricity up 1%. Most importantly, shelter rising 0.8%. But the overall story here on inflation has been coming down. While Fed officials stick to their call for a 5% funds rate and holding it there, for this year and maybe Bullard into next. Bullard is kind of my weather vane. And the fact that he's not in the 25 camp does give me a little bit of pause. Let me give you a little more information on that, which is he was sort of didn't mind, didn't care about it. He was he was um, he, he didn't care. He was agnostic about it because his point was doesn't matter. He'd like to front load it with a 50, I think. But he said it doesn't matter as long as you get there. OK, to the point. All right. Steve, stay with us. Let's bring in a heavy hitter now who has deep personal knowledge of the Fed. Our next guest says this inflation battle was caused by the Fed's COVID response in the first place. The man who helped implement some of those policies says they were necessary at the time, but warns they also gave the Fed unprecedented power that could be dangerous. And he says the Fed should have pulled back sooner to prevent this inflation. Joining us now is former Federal Reserve Vice Chair Randall Quarles. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Can I ask you to weigh in on the inflation debate right now? Should they stop, uh, given what's happening with some of the forward data? No, I think it would be premature to stop. But I think it's also, uh, uh, you know, this is very positive news. The the good news about the uh, inflation being principally driven by overstimulated demand is that that's something that the Fed's tools can respond to. Uh, and they're beginning to have an effect. Uh, it's going to take a lag for monetary policy to have an effect. So the strong moves from the summer and the fall, you'd expect to begin seeing them working through the economy right now. And I think we're beginning to see them work through the economy. Randy, nice fire out there. Is that Utah where you've had a ton of snow? This is this is Utah. It's a great ski season. So, How many uh, inches? Like 30 inches in the last like three hours, right? I wow. mean, it's crazy. It, 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 every day it has been it's been amazing. Dumping. Well, let me ask you about cold and hot here. Uh, how concerned do you think the Fed is by what's happening with financial conditions? We just had a chart up of the two year. It came down with the jobs report. It came down again today. The Fed keeps talking five. The market keeps answering four. Yeah. <laughs> is that a problem? And what can should the Fed do something about it? What could it do if it if it should? So it makes the Fed's job harder. Uh, because I think it's very clear, you know, the, the news is positive, but it's we're absolutely not out of the woods. And I think that you know, future rate increases are necessary and they're going to be held for longer than the market expects. Uh, A, that's just necessary given the way the world works. The Fed is signaling strongly that that's going to be the case. And the more the markets don't listen to the Fed uh, or don't believe the Fed, then the the harder it is for uh, the Fed's policy to have an effect, and it's going to have to possibly increase more than would otherwise be necessary. Randy, so it makes it harder. Let's put back up the chart of the three-month tenure here, which is now at a new, let's just call it record low, 115 basis points right now. Why does everybody say the markets need to listen to the Fed when it appears the Fed needs to take more seriously the message coming from markets, unless you think they need and want this deep of a looming downturn in order to cure the inflation problem. Do you think that's what's happening here? 
No, I mean, I think that a, a recession is, you know, extremely likely, almost inevitable. I think that recession is given uh, comparison to history on the short and shallow side, uh, given the fundamental strength of the economy. So all of that's going to be necessary. Uh, but again, to the extent that uh, prices in the markets are reflecting a lack of confidence in the Fed's resolve or a belief that the Fed is going to begin pulling back from uh, from the terminal interest rate uh, relatively soon, uh, that those are mistakes and will, in fact, result in the Fed having to go higher than but otherwise. He, here's my question, and, I, and maybe both of you can wait on this, but Randy, it would appear to me if we get negative job market prints, why shouldn't the Fed immediately respond to that with rate cuts? I mean, why would they keep rates where they are if, by definition, cutting the labor market means wage growth is going to slow? I don't understand why they'd say, no, 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 we're just going to keep the rate at 5 percent and just ignore it. Well, it's not ignoring it. It's recognizing that you've got a lot more progress to make. So there has been progress in uh, wage pressures. Uh, obviously, the jobs report from last week was positive on that front. But it, there's still a lot of upward wage pressure. Uh, and you have to see you're particularly when you're dealing with expectations, you have to see sustained progress and sustained moves towards a level that's much closer to the Fed's targets in all of those areas, and particularly much closer to the 2% inflation target before you can begin to ease. Yeah. Uh, it's not a question of, oh, the ease, the, the numbers are beginning to move in the right direction so we can begin to move our policy because that causes people to say, ah, they're easing and we're going to, uh, uh, we're going to respond accordingly. You have to keep uh, inflation at the terminal rate for a relatively lengthy period of time, certainly lengthy compared to what markets appear to be currently expecting. Randy, I'm, I'm going to just turn on a dime one thing that you said earlier, where you said maybe the market uh, doesn't believe the Fed. I think it could be the opposite. I think the market do. believes right. the Fed and that and that the Fed is making a mistake here. Um, I just wonder if you're buying two years at 415, 420, if you believe inflation is going to be running out of control. I just don't think you do. But I, I want, what I want to get to your, and, and you're a thoughtful guy, I'm sure you've considered that idea. But what I want to ask you this, you said earlier, um, maybe the Fed has to do more. Would you think that that could, the idea that rates are running lower than the Fed wants, would that motivate them perhaps to do a 50 basis point hike? And also there's the idea of perhaps using the balance sheet to potentially raise the long end of the curve. What do you think of that? So, um, I, you know, I think the, the the Fed has been, you know, has developed a practice of pretty successfully communicating what the next hike is going to be. Uh, and I think rather than the next hike being 50 basis points, the question is uh, how many more 25 basis point hikes uh -huh. are there? Again, given just where all the numbers are moving, they're moving in the right direction. They just, you know, they're clearly not there yet and won't be for a while. Uh, so I don't think I don't I don't think that means to the extent that financial conditions are easing too much. I don't think that means uh, a tougher next move. It just means more moves, possibly a higher hmm. terminal. Hmm. Let's bring in if you guys will just hold on a moment. We had a bond auction top of the hour. We had a strong tenure yesterday. This time it's 30 or Rick Santelli. Could you bring us the results? Yeah, I'll tell you what, this auction would just unbelievable and the reason is is because the market is rallying so strong as the auctions going on uh, the yields are coming up with new fresh low yields every five minutes so to that end 18 billion 30-year bonds completing 90 billion in coupon supply this week uh, and what we end up with is an a 
uh, yield of 3.585. It would have been an A plus if it wasn't for one metric. And that one metric was direct bidders at 16.3. It was a bit under the 18% 10 auction average, the lightest since October 2020. Two of the metrics would blew my mind because my 20-year database, when they brought bonds back, there's nothing better. One of those is your favorite, indirect bidders. Indirect bidders, you know, foreign entities, 74.6%, off the chart strong. And dealers took a whopping only 9%. Smallest I have in my 20-year database since they brought bonds back. A really solid auction. And all three were pretty darn good. And I would be interested in what Mr. Quarles thinks, because this really gives us a good insight. When the Fed's pushing back the hardest, the day of CPI, the market's rallying, yields going down, and they still stepped up and bought those 30-year bonds. I'm going to interject before you. I'm going to inject before Randy answers, which is people need to know how hard it is to get an A from Rick Santelli <laughs> on anything you do, not great, let alone a, a bond auction. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, we, we're both here flabbergasted as well. The inflation is surging. Fed's going to five, but not surging, but, you know, it's Fed's going to 5% and people are buying 30 years like they're going out of style. Exactly. And, and Randy, we should circle back around to the point you've made as well about the Fed interventions uh, during the crisis and the extent to which you think that opens them up to big future mm-hmm. problems. You know, saying, hey, you know, they're doing lending. They're involved. They went into all of these areas they had never been in before. Um, but it sounds like before we can even have that debate, probably the, the more consequential one in the long run, We've got to figure out if we're if this economy is heading over a precipice, because how else do you explain the demand for 30 year paper today? Yeah, I, I, I well, the 30 years is a, is a long time, so I'm not sure that has more to do with uh, <laughs> uh, sort of uh, uh, that doesn't really have to do with kind of expectations about the uh, immediate evolution of the economy, I don't think. But uh, uh, but I, I do think that, you know, what we're seeing is a, a bit of a a market misperception of what the Fed's likely, you know, near-term path is uh, is likely to be. Um, I agree with you, Steve, that, uh, you know, that I, I think there's a sense that the Fed is ultimately going to be successful. But the more the market misreads the near-term path, uh, then the the tougher the Fed's action is going to, to have to be in order to get near-term financial conditions where they want it to be. Rick? You know, the only issue I would have with that is is that nobody knows the future. And if two or three uh, months down the road, we're getting CPI numbers where not only the monthly numbers are negative, but we're starting to see a major retrenching of some of the year over year, I'd beg to differ. I think they're not data dependent. They're date dependent, which in my opinion is a bit sad. But I do think ultimately the data will win out. And if the market is correctly, because investors are correctly anticipating and correctly informed with regard to prices falling and trying to interpolate things like, you know, shelter and all the issues that are a bit slow to come to present values in the CPI reading, then I think that the Fed isn't necessarily going to be wrong. They're just going to hang out too long. And I think the market will make that quite apparent over the next couple of CPI cycles. And Mr. Quarles will give you a final answer on that. Yeah, well, I think, I, you know, I, I think that's a perfectly fair point. If you see uh, inflation meeting the Fed's targets much faster than the Fed expects, then yes, they'll respond and they should respond. Uh, where I think there's a bit of a disconnect is in folks thinking, you know, there's a, a line of thought out there. Well, maybe three percent is enough. Uh, and and 
Uh, and I think it's very clear that the Fed can't sort of say 3% is close enough for government work. And so we can begin bringing our our uh, terminal interest rate down once we've approached 3%. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to approach closer to the Fed's targets. And I think that's where folks may be making a disconnect. Uh, Rick, I'm going to call you after the show. I'll tell you why. Because we talk a lot about what if the Fed is wrong here? What if the market's wrong? I, I think but were that's they wrong on past wrong. inversions. Well, I mean, no, but but here's what I'm saying. I, here's what I'm saying. Let's say the Fed has this right. Uh, all it, work with me on this. Let's say the Fed has this right, and the market has to come back up to where the Fed is. My point is ouch that would be the answer. That would be an ouch. That would really hurt. I'm just saying. And 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 what's weird is that we talked about this idea of the Fed Gentlemen. of the market being below the Fed. Yeah. For, but they might have to catch up. At the up. end of next year. Not but now it's this year. Yes. And there's uh, going to be a reckoning Let's completely way. switch gears for a moment. Attorney General Merrick Garland is making a statement about President Biden and his handling of documents. Let's, let's, let's listen in. I'm joined today by John Lausch, the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, who conducted the initial investigation into the matter that I will describe today. On the evening of November 4th, 2022, the National Archives Office of Inspector General contacted a prosecutor at the Department of Justice. It informed him that the White House had notified the archives that documents bearing classification markings were identified at the office of the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement located in Washington, D.C. That office was not authorized for storage of classified documents. The prosecutor was also advised that those documents had been secured in an archives facility. On November 9th, the FBI commenced an assessment consistent with standard protocols to understand whether classified information had been mishandled in violation of federal law. On November 14th, pursuant to Section 600.2B of the Special Counsel Regulations, I assigned U.S. Attorney Lausch to conduct an initial investigation to inform my decision whether to appoint a special counsel. Mr. Lausch has served as the U.S. Attorney in Chicago since 2017. Before that, he spent more than a decade as an assistant U.S. Attorney in that same office. I selected him to conduct the initial investigation because I was confident his experience would ensure that it would be done professionally and expeditiously. On December 20th, President Biden's personal counsel informed Mr. Lausch that additional documents bearing classification markings were identified in the garage of the president's private residence in Wilmington, Delaware. President Biden's counsel informed Mr. Lausch that those documents were among other records from the period of the president's service as vice president. The FBI went to the location and secured those documents. On January 5th, 2023, Mr. Lausch briefed me on the results of his initial investigation and advised me that further investigation by a special counsel was warranted. Based on Mr. Lausch's initial investigation, I concluded that under the special counsel regulations, it was in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. In the days since, while Mr. Lausch continued the investigation, the department identified Mr. Herr for appointment as special counsel. This morning, President Biden's personal counsel called Mr. Lausch and stated that an additional document bearing classification markings was identified at the president's personal residence in Wilmington, Delaware. When I first contacted Mr. Lausch about this matter, he said he could lead the initial investigation, 
but would be unable to accept any longer-term assignment because he would be leaving the department in early 2023 for the private sector. U.S. Attorney Lausch and his team of prosecutors and agents have conducted this initial investigation with professionalism and speed. I am grateful to them. Earlier today, I, I signed an order appointing Robert Herr a special counsel for the matter I've just described. The document authorizes him to investigate whether any person or entity violated the law in connection with this matter. The special counsel will not be subject to the day-to-day -day supervision of any official of the department, but he must comply with the regulations, procedures, and policies of the department. Mr. Herr has a long and distinguished career as a prosecutor. In 2003, he joined the department's criminal division, where he worked on counterterrorism, corporate fraud, and appellate matters. From 2007 until 2014, Mr. Herr served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland, where he prosecuted matters ranging from violent crime to financial fraud. In 2017, Mr. Herr rejoined the department as the principal associate deputy attorney general. In 2018, he was nominated and confirmed to serve as a U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland. As U.S. attorney, he supervised some of the department's more important national security, public corruption, and other high-profile matters. I will ensure that Mr. Herr receives all the resources he needs to conduct his work. As I have said before, I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. But under the regulations, the extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter. This appointment underscores for the public the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters and to making decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. I am confident that Mr. Herr will carry out his responsibility in an even-handed and urgent manner and in accordance with the highest traditions of this department. Thank you all. Have you ever spoken to the president about this investigation, sir? And there you hear it from Attorney General Merrick Garland, again, making comments about who's been appointed special counsel in the Biden document probe. We'll, of course, keep you updated with any further headlines as we get them. Let's go back now to one of the major corporate stories of the day. It's been less than two months since Disney CEO Bob Iger returned as CEO. The shares are up about 9% since then, but now he's already got a proxy fight on his hands. Activist investor Nelson Peltz confirming he's looking for a seat on Disney's board, saying the company lost its way and he's taking issue with their 2019 acquisition of Fox. In an interview this morning, Peltz also claimed the streaming business shouldn't be that hard. Take a listen. My goal is to reduce corporate overhead to a point that the company gets better. I'd like to see this company stop running like a matrix and start running like the companies we've been involved in, where they have real CEOs of businesses with real P&Ls, real cash flows, and really and real projections i know it's hard in the movie business but it's not that hard in the streaming business okay and they've got to be able to do that i see sean laughing already all right 
Is it not that hard in the streaming business? Joining us now to discuss, Cynthia Littleton is Variety's co-editor-in-chief. Sean McNulty is a contributor at The Ankler. And Alex Sherman is CNBC.com's media reporter. Alex, I want to start with you and urge everyone to read your piece, which goes over a lot of the responses Disney might have to the case that Nelson Peltz is laying out. What would the main contentions be? I listened for 30 minutes, Kelly, to Nelson Peltz speak to David Faber and Jim Cramer. And, and I was struck by the fact that I don't think he leaned into his strongest argument, which is the fact that the Disney board and Bob Iger have consistently bungled succession planning over and over again. That is the weakness of the Disney board. If he wants a seat on the board, he should be leaning into that. He has a 35-slide presentation that he's published. Succession planning doesn't come up until slide 27, Hmm. and he barely mentioned it at all during this sort of wide-ranging Interview. The idea that Disney has underperformed under Bob Iger is sort of cherry picked. And in fact, if you go all the way back to when Bob Iger started as CEO to the day he left, uh, Disney hasn't underperformed the S&P 500. This idea he's talking about with the streaming service uh, uh, not being a profitable business. Disney has said streaming wasn't going to be a profitable business for years. You have to allow the business to play out. They have already set a target date of 2024 when they feel that business will break even. And then the idea is it will become a better business later on. Sean, is succession the Achilles heel for Disney? In other words, is Iger himself the problem? Is he the villain or the hero of this story? Well, Bob's certainly the hero, but it's just not job one. He's got two years and he's got a lot of problems. You know, Dan Loeb was in last summer talking about ESPN. That's still out there. You know, succession is a big part of, you know, the plan here. And the board, you know, set up a succession committee to, you know, signify that they're on it. Uh, you know, this is something that they, the problem that existed before won't come back again. But uh, you know, yeah, everybody knows this. I don't know that it's job one right now. And the losses, you know, they're $1.5 billion in the last quarter. Q4 is probably going to be in the same range. That's what has to turn around here. You know, the price hike just went into effect. So it's going to be another five or six months before that streaming narrative starts to turn. So, you know, succession is out there and it's important. But, uh, you know, he has one, a whole year ahead to kind of do what he's going to do with the business. And then maybe year two is succession. But, sure. you know, I... I don't think it's the job one right now. Well, Cynthia, let's focus on this idea that the streaming business needs to be profitable and that it shouldn't be that hard. You have this great piece saying this is Hollywood's next reckoning, that studios need to get real about the runaway spending on streaming. Do you think that Peltz has a case here? Well, I think he he could talk to a lot of CEOs in town. Ted Sarandos, David Zaslav might argue with the streaming business should be easy. That is, I think that's pretty well established that it is a very challenging business to go out there and get subscribers one by one, particularly direct to consumer subscribers. I think what, what Nelson has done with a hammer here is he's forcing a reckoning, a referendum on the 21st Century Fox acquisition. He's asking, was it worth it? Was it worth what they paid? Is Was the leverage, was all of the issues that came along with the Fox acquisition, was it worth it in the end? And I think he's using a hammer to get to that question hmm. that Wall Street has started to ask as the losses piled up. He's just doing it in a much more blunt way. Although I like Alex's point in his piece, uh, Cynthia, where he says, you know, aiming at Iger's acquisition history is kind of a curious move because he's had so many great ones. So if really Peltz wants to pick the fight about the Fox acquisition, is that itself enough to just say, hey, in this case, maybe the the price tag was too high or or what have you. And for that reason alone, I should have a, a voice on the board. 
The big difference, of course, with Fox, the previous acquisitions were like under $10 billion. Fox was a much bigger swing. Sure. And I think and I think, you know, I think anybody that's covered Disney annual meetings, there are so many shareholders, so many votes. It seems like this is a really uphill climb for him to actually get to get those votes. But it's it's very clear that it's a new era for Disney and even Bob Iger's aura couldn't keep this kind of conversation at bay. That's a great point. Alex, what would you add to that? And what do you think that the next move is going to be for Peltz to to kind of galvanize the broader investing community around some of these ideas, around the idea that he needs to have a voice, around the idea that, you know, they need to go ahead and buy the rest of Hulu, for instance? I mean, there was there were a lot of different ideas here. So I think the Bob Iger defense for the Fox acquisition is that if Disney had not done that acquisition, uh, our parent company, Comcast, would have. If you remember, mm. Comcast overbid Disney for the, for the assets for Fox. And what would have happened is Comcast would have walked away with a majority stake in Hulu, uh, Avatar, The Simpsons, FX. It, that acquisition would have uh, demonstrably strengthened the position of NBC Universal in the streaming wars, in the entertainment wars. Sure. So, yeah, maybe Disney overpaid. In fact, they did overpay. For Fox, but you have to think about the competitive dynamics uh, that that go into that deal. That 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 basically, I think Bob Iger would say, "Look, that deal allowed Disney to stay on top of the competition, and it goes beyond the simple numbers at a given moment in time yeah. based on valuations." Look, that deal didn't look so bad 18 months ago. Now it looks really bad. Sure. So I think that's the defense there, and we'll see if Disney, in fact, makes that argument publicly. Absolutely, Sean. We'll give you the last word here. I mean, look, Avatar is taking over the world right now, so the Fox deal doesn't look that bad at the moment. Um, yeah. It's an interesting time to say the Fox deal was terrible when you have the number one film in the world. Uh, I don't, you know, streaming is easy. These, these are sentiments. I, I don't know what his, what his end goal is here, honestly. Uh, nothing new came out of this whole letter for me. I just think, I, I don't know what his plan is. I don't know what the thing is. I think Bob if is- may, Go ahead, Cynthia, quick if last I word. May, the one thing that we do learn from all of this is that Rupert Murdoch sold his assets at the top of the market. <laughs> Revealing his uh, business savvy, if nothing else. Guys, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Cynthia Littleton, Sean McNulty, and our Alex Sherman. want to mention the markets, which are near session highs as we debate. Uh, I'm sorry, look at that. Five minutes passes and we're off that level. The Dow was up more than 300 points. It's about halved that to a gain of 165 right now, still better than the low print of a minus 180. Let's get over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Los Angeles-based City National Bank has agreed to pay $31 million to settle charges of discriminatory mortgage lending practices. The Justice Department says it is the largest redlining case in U.S. history. City National, a unit of Royal Bank of Canada, denies any wrongdoing, but they're paying nonetheless. Prosecutors say the extremist group, the Proud Boys, attacked the heart of democracy during the Capitol Hill attack on January 6, 2021. The former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio and four of his lieutenants are charged with seditious conspiracy for trying to stop the transfer of power to President Biden. Opening statements are underway in the trial, one of the most high profile involving the January 6 riot. 
And quadruple murder suspect Brian Kohlberger was back in an Idaho court today. He's charged with fatally stabbing four University of Idaho students two months ago. Kohlberger has yet to enter a plea. His next hearing won't be until June. His lawyers saying they need time to prepare their case. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, I'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Still ahead, the Dow transports are up 7% to start the year. Is that sending an all-clear signal? And what are businesses experiencing? We'll get a C-suite view. Plus, we're kicking off the heart of earnings season with a look at the big banks reporting tomorrow morning. You won't believe the huge drops they're expected to see in their bottom lines. The exchange is back after this. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. While all the focus is on bank earnings that kick off tomorrow, the real question for markets will be on those tech heavyweights that start to report next week, led by Netflix on Thursday. Mega cap tech getting slammed in the past year. Meta down 60 percent, Amazon down 42 percent, but all perking up in January. Will earnings help these stocks regain the market's leadership or has that ship sailed? Here to discuss is Mark Mahaney, head of Internet Research at Evercore ISI, and Ari Levy is deputy tech editor for CNBC.com. Welcome to all of you. Mark, I thought, did I hear correctly? You think these stocks could be going to new highs this year? Or am I, I, I can't believe that you would think that. Ah. Well, please don't be so skeptical. Um, look, we try to be uh, tactically uh, constructive going into the year. Multiples have been de-risked. Estimates have been de-risked. And we've seen a lot of cost actions, i.e. rifts, i.e. reduction in forces, job cuts. That at least creates the ability for these companies to have a little bit of an EPS slingshot opportunity. But we want to be tactical. We want to look for companies that are somewhat recession resilient, maybe have a new product cycle and have already taken costs out. That puts Netflix at the top of the list for us. I think this new basic with ads, this new ad supported offering is the real deal. I think it'll impact and cause a reacceleration in revenue growth. I don't think that's in street numbers or in the stock price. I also like Uber. I think that business model, the demand for it kind of holds up. We all still have to commute. And then I also like Meta. Uh, and I think advertising headwinds are going to be real this year. I just think street numbers have been lowered enough, and the company has taken a major riff for reduction in force uh, action. And um, an evaluation I think is super attractive. It's, hmm. I think the risk reward is very asymmetrical. So yeah, I think some of the internet stocks can outperform the market this year, and it, it's those to get to the top it, of my list. You're sort of the yin to the yang of what Oswald Demotorin told us, and Ari, I'll turn to you. Oswald said he would actually be a buyer or, or a holder, really, of most mega cap tech, except Netflix, because of some of the streaming economics that were referenced in the previous segment. So you know that tells you that there's enough uh, dispersion that the stock's going to do something interesting. What would you say about the rest of mega cap tech, Ari? 
Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, these stories are all pretty disparate, right? I mean, Meta and Amazon are the two I'm looking at the most closely because they were the two of the mega cap ones that were hit the hardest last year. Um, and and I, I'm really wondering, you know, if, if they're going to give us any indication that the bleeding has stopped, that they've hit a bottom, that there's something to look forward to in the second half, because the first half looks quite bleak. You know, if you think about Meta, the, the struggle, um, it was really the, the biggest story of 2022 until the Elon Twitter saga uh, hit and the crypto meltdown. Um, you know, as Mark said, they've cut a bunch of the fat through layoffs, so the EPS should show some recovery. But there's still no real growth there. The the company's been shrinking for several quarters, uh, and this is a company that's always been thought of as a growth company. So until there's some momentum, it's just hard to imagine investors getting really excited about the story. Sure. Uh, and then Amazon is mired in the single digit growth, um, and you know, e-commerce is is a huge question mark. Uh, across the board, and they have these huge questions in their third-party marketplace uh, where sellers are really just disconcerted with the way that Amazon has been treating them, raising prices on them, yeah. uh, and, and limiting their storage capacity. So those are the two stories that I'm really most anxious to, to hear from, the companies I'm most anxious to hear And Mark, from. to your point about how they all kind of have their own narratives at this point, which of these, if any, are going to be a bellwether? And is the biggest bellwether just the Federal Reserve at this point? Oh, well, probably. But if the big bellwether, the obvious answers to that, I think, are Amazon and Google, just given how sprawling hmm. their empires are, if you will. A Amazon's going to give you a read into enterprise demand. That's cloud computing. It's going to give you a read into the consumer. It's going to more more of a read into the consumer because all that retail and advertising exposure. And, you know, on, on the other side of this, I do find like the question we all need to ask ourselves is, is it cyclical or is there something structural going on with these businesses or do they make some execution errors? I think in the case of Amazon, look, I like it long term. I just I think near term, I, I don't know why it materially outperforms because I think numbers are still at risk. But Amazon, there's nothing they've not like, they've not lost any market share. Uh, I think, in fact, they're gaining share, I think, in online retail. I think they're maintaining share in cloud computing. They overbuilt, overhired post-COVID. Other companies did, too. Amazon, to their credit, was the first company to admit it. Now they're starting to take costs out. I think there's a really nice setup. And if you're willing to look out more than a year, I mean, the Amazon story, I think there's a lot of re-rating in the multiple. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to be one of the best growth assets. If you're willing to look beyond a year, right. I think if you want to be near term about it, there are other names you want to look at, like Netflix and Uber. Yeah, it's hard to be near term right now because it's so the macro is so unclear. But if Amazon and Google are, are the bellwethers for mega cap tech, Ari, Uber is certainly a bellwether for the gig economy, which plenty of people are happy to throw the towel in on altogether at this point. You know, we spoke uh, to a trader yesterday who's short DoorDash or would sell the company for this reason. He just think the economics make no sense. Same with Uber stories this morning. Drivers can't make enough money on the platform. You know, it's expensive. You know, tweets that are joking now about how all the new economy, you know, cheapo fun millennial stuff is now harder and more expensive than the things it replaced. So uh, doth the, the bell toll for uh, for this whole industry? Yeah, you know, this was these were supposed to be tech companies and they were they were valued like tech companies when everything was up and to the right and everything was uh, was valued on revenue multiples. That story obviously changed completely last year. And uh, and now we see that in order to be a tech company, you actually have to make money on the product that you sell uh, and, and have that, you know, have scale in 
have that margin be able to scale, have the product be able to scale. And these companies just fundamentally don't. Uh, that doesn't mean that they are doomed as companies, but will we ever view them as tech stocks again? Uh, that's more in, in Mark's uh, ballpark than mine, but it just seems like fundamentally the, the valuations on these companies have been have been forever changed. Yeah, and Mark, I'll give you a quick last word. As I know, people are hanging on these hopes that Uber will be cash flow positive. What are people who cite the comments I just made missing about the microeconomics that might be turning in its favor? I don't think they're missing anything. I'll just make the point, Kelly, that uh, uh, Uber has turned positive free cash flow. They did it two quarters ago. And so every quarter, if they continue to do this and they can prove out a goal of reaching $4 billion in free cash flow by next year, by 2024, this stock's going to be higher. And it's a good thing. We're focusing on free cash flow with Uber. You couldn't have done that in the past. Now you can. And I think as they build up that free cash flow, I think that's going to be good for uh, I think that's going to be good for the stock and for investors in the stock. And we've got a lot of people drive this. They've actually got a little bit of a counter cyclical hedge here in the business. You've got a lot more drivers coming onto the network. What that means is they need less subsidies, less incentives, which means it's going to be more profitable going forward. I like Uber here. True. In a way, all of these companies were born of the slow recovery after the last recession. Uh, and those dynamics are a labor market we, we might be heading back towards. Mark and Ari, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Mark Mahaney Thanks, and our Ari Levy. Still ahead, the transport indicator. GXO shares are up nearly 22% over the past two weeks and climbing higher yet again today. But there are some red flags on the horizon. We have the latest from the logistics company's Investor Day next. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back. We look to transports for early signs of economic momentum and shares of logistics company GXO are moving higher after the company issued strong guidance at its investor day. They're up more than 6%. Let's get Frank Holland in here with the numbers and a supply chain update, Frank. Well, here there, Kelly. As you mentioned, GXO shares popping right now. They're also popping year to date as demand, even as demand for its core businesses of warehousing and fulfillment is softening. CEO Malcolm Wilson also adds the company expects about a $60 million negative impact from the stronger dollar. Still today, issuing preliminary full-year numbers ahead of its Q4 earnings in February. Also targets through fiscal year 2027. You see them right here. Uh, Deutsche Bank out with a very bullish note this morning on the targets and the company itself that counts Apple, Nike, and Samsung among its S&P 500 customers. You all see LVMH and Raytheon in that mix. CEO Malcolm Wilson told me while customer demand is slowing a bit, companies moving production from China, that's a big tailwind. General trend we're seeing across many, many customers is that trend of nearshoring. If I think about our business in Europe, companies typically, especially in the fashion industry, they're bringing product more into Turkey manufacturing, Central European manufacturing. Here in North America, we're seeing a trend, our business in Mexico, really very busy at the moment. So that trend, I think, is set to stay. So reshoring and nearshoring are expected to be big macro tailwinds for industrial logistics stocks. That group includes XPO, which you can see right here is up almost 13% year-to-date. Also, SIA, that's a big trucking logistics stock, up almost 14% year-to-date. Both of them outperforming even the Dow transports and, of course, as I mentioned, the market. Right. Come on over, Frank. So 
you know, I'm always looking at this from the economic indicator point of view. I mean, we are happy for these stocks, maybe, that, that they're reporting what they are. What is the broader message you think about the economy? Well, the broader message is we're nearing the bottoming cycle of trucking rates and logistics when it comes to warehouse and everything else. But demand remains resilient. As, you, as we see, even from CPI, even with inflation up, consumers continue to spend. And all of us have gotten really used to buying things online, which requires more warehousing and trucking. Um, and also just having the things that we want. I don't think anybody wants to change all of their habits. So as long as that baseline consumer demand remains the same, these companies have very stable business models. And part of those projections, we didn't show it on the screen, is a free cash flow projection mm -hmm. from GXO. They're expecting to have strong free cash flow between now and 2027, which is the year they issue their targets. Because again, companies are not only um, filling their warehouses with consumer items, but companies are also reshoring and nearshoring, sure. changing production, which is a big tailwind, again, for these industrial logistics stocks. It's a great point. It's exactly what nervous investors want to hear right now. Frank, thank you. Thank Frank you. Holland. Still ahead, big banks are out with their earnings before the bell tomorrow, and some have been on a tear lately. J.P. Morgan up 26% since they reported in October. The key factors to watch and how to be positioned next. Welcome back. Earnings season unofficially kicks off tomorrow with some of the big banks on deck like B of A, Citi, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo all before the bell. Let's get to Dom Chu with a preview of those results. We also have CNBC.com's Hugh Sun here and RBC's Gerard Cassidy to talk about some potential winners and losers. Welcome, everybody. Dom, let's kick things off. All right. So despite the sector's recent performance, banks have seen steep earnings drops all year and the stocks have followed suit. We've seen double digit declines in each earnings season for each of the first three quarters of of 2022, as you can see behind me here. And the decline is expected to continue in the final quarter of the year, where analysts are currently predicting a 9% decline in earnings per share from that group. But as you can see, it is getting better trend-wise, somewhat. Now, if you isolate the big banks in the sector, the range of expectations gets pretty wide, depending on which firm you're talking about. For the likes of Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, we're talking about the projected earnings declines somewhere in the range of around 40 to 50 percent, as you can see here, for those three banks. They are not expected to be nearly as deep for the likes of Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, down between 6 and 22 percent. But the results are bad enough perhaps to signal a potential bottom for the industry, or that's what people are thinking. That's where the forward-looking commentary from many of these big bank CEOs and CFOs will be key, because the economic outlook is front and center, as is the potential market volatility that could go along with it. So will it lead to more money being set aside for potentially bad loans? What will it do to deal-making and capital markets activity? And what's their outlook for interest rates? This could be the most important kickoff to earnings season that we've seen in years. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. So which bank will come out on top this earnings season? Let's turn to Gerard Cassidy and our Hughes son. Gerard, we'll start with you. Who are you most excited about and, and most concerned about? I think, Kelly, what we're excited about is the big banks with strong consumer deposits. It's been 15 years since investors have had to look at the right side of the balance sheet. These core consumer deposits are the funding of um, the balance sheets that give the banks big margins and big spreads, which we saw in 2022 and will continue to see in 2023. So who is that? Bank America is one. There's some of the regional banks, like a key corp. Fifth Third, J.P. Morgan as well. These are the companies that have really strong consumer franchises that will lead to higher profitability in 2023. And then what's the flip side? Uh, who are you a little bit more bracing for? 
Yep. No, that, that's a good question. I would say you've got to be careful about capital markets. We all know 2022 was a terrible year for investment banking. We don't think it springs right back here in the first part of 23. And I think as long as uh, the ECM markets continue to remain under pressure, as well as advisory, that means Morgan Stanley and Goldman could struggle in the first part of the year. Uh, they're all rallying today for what it's worth. Hugh, uh, J.P. Morgan, I have a little bit of a distraction here on the eve of its big report with this report about what happened at the student loan business that they bought. What, what is going on here? Yeah, let's set the scene. Okay, so, uh, and we broke the story in 2021. We, we broke the news that J.P. Morgan was acquiring uh, a student loan uh, financial aid platform called Frank, okay? I, didn't, I hadn't heard about it before that day, but we learned about it at the time. We spoke to the founder. Um, it was reported, it was advertised to have uh, four to five million users at the time, and J.P. Morgan touted it as the fastest growing such platform that was around. Um, and so a few months after the acquisition, we learned from a lawsuit filed in federal court last month, J.P. Morgan is, is sending out a batch of about 400,000 emails to these purported Frank customers, starting the marketing ball rolling, you know, trying to sure. monetize what they had purchased for $175 million. 70% of the emails bounced back. Wow. And so this is the first sign to them, and it took them several more months to really ascertain what had happened. Um, you know, when they purchased this as startup, they actually acquired also the IP as well as the emails between the founder uh, and, uh, and other parties. And what they had been able to reconstruct is the founder, in order to get the deal done, had actually hired a data scientist huh. to invent, to confect, four million fake users, fake accounts, wow. in order for them to close the deal, seal the deal. And it turns out actually in these emails, the founder actually asked her head of engineering uh, for, you know, for help in, in, in coming up with these accounts. He declined. Wow. And then she went ahead and looked for uh, a data scientist at New York City College to help her. And it only cost about $18,000. Incredible. And it's uh, nefarious. And does it, Gerard, raise for you any questions about due diligence at J.P. Morgan. I don't know how you prevent something like this unless you send out the blast email first before you buy them. No, Kelly, it's a good question. And when it's fraud, you know, even in lending, it's very hard to detect fraud, which is what we had here. So, yes, maybe the due diligence could have been done better. But we have to remember, it's very hard to detect fraud, the traditional fraud as in the lending area. But in this case, of course, this is uh, digital. Hugh, what do you think are the lessons here, either for J.P. Morgan, or just as perhaps a, a sign of the times? Um, it's a pretty shocking story. It almost, do we say Theranos-esque? I mean, Shades of Theranos here. Yeah. I, I want to say, you know, we all kind of know what Jamie Dimon's like. We would assume that he would go Krakatoa after hearing this. Sure. So it's an embarrassing episode for them. He's been de defending their, uh, their huge expense in technology. This is one of those uh, purchases. And then you have to go back and look and, and question their, uh, their due diligence. I think the bigger story is, uh, if it is difficult to do due, due, due diligence in this case, in the, in the age of AI, in the age of being able to use algorithms that, to create fake identities, True. are we going to see more of these? And True. that's the question. No, it probably sends a chill down the spine of anybody looking uh, to acquire a hot startup. Let's ask if they're trying to flip the script tomorrow in their results. How might they most effectively do so? J.P. Morgan, wouldn't you say, is probably looked to as the barometer for bank earnings and, frankly, for the U.S. economy. For sure, because they're big in all the major uh, business lines. I want to say, you know, going into this, um, you know, J.P. Morgan, their, their exposure to credit and to credit cards specifically is a bit heavier than others. So if you're looking at sort of the big winners in this, I think there's a chance that they might have to reserve bigger than people expect. Great point. And so I think, you know, boring is beautiful. I think B of A in this case, their responsible growth mantra might actually be the, the most uh, clean 
earnings of the season. Gerard, you share that point of view or would you see it differently? Well, I think you know, the fourth quarter results are going to be strong on credit for all the banks. But you're right. We're going to see reserve building due to new accounting for 2023. The economy is slowing. But what investors are starting to realize, and, and Kelly, you pointed it out with the J.P. Morgan performance since October, the bank stocks year to date are outperforming the market because investors are realizing that revenue growth from net interest revenue, that's good old fashioned lending, is very strong and it's going to cover the cost of higher credit hmm. that we expect. So we expect higher credit costs. But right now, the revenue growth more than offsets those higher expenses. Very, very interesting. Thank you both. We'll leave it there for now. Gerard Cassidy and our Hugh Sun. By the way, don't miss Break, uh, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. He'll be on Closing Bell tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up on Power Lunch, we'll get a look at the so-called condo king of Miami's newest project and why he's betting big on super luxury amid signs of a slowdown. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.